Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. This week, I'm joined by Sports Illustrated's Luis Miguel Echegaray, my co-host of the weekly Planet Football video show on the SITV streaming channel. Luis is a fascinating guy, and he shares his story from living in Peru to England to the United States, from acting to coaching to journalism, and from rooting for Peru to England to the U.S. to, of all clubs, Aston Villa. He also has some strong opinions on the landscape of soccer in the United States. I think one of the biggest problems in this country is that in a country that's so rich, so celebratory of diversity, at least it used to be when we look at it, the grand spectrum of things, one of the biggest problems is that we don't have a direct relationship with the communities that we're meant to serve, especially the minority ones. All that and more coming up. As promised, we've got Luis Miguel Echegaray here with me on this week's podcast. Uh, Luis joined Sports Illustrated in 2017, and he is my co-host on Planet Football on SITV. It's a weekly show that I hope you check out. We've been doing several episodes now. Great guests this week. We've got Julie Foudy. We've got Christian Pulisic. We've had Roberta Martinez, Patrick Vieira, Gwendolyn Oxenham, Howard Webb, Hercules Gomez. It's just too good, man. The show's too and good. And many, many others. But today is all about Luis. <laughs> my God. That's amazing. Today's all about Luis. <laughs> Not even my wife says that. <laughs> and I thought it would be good... Uh, not just to make you aware of the Planet Football show on SITV, uh, which we do hope you try out. It's got a seven-day free trial on that. It's on Amazon. But also to get a sense of, of who Luis is. Uh, I've done this with Brian Strauss, and everyone's got a story, especially I find in the American soccer community. There's a reason why we get into soccer, and everyone has a different story. But I want to start with Luis by... You know, what is your story and what we do know from some of your writing for SI's website from our show, if anyone's seen it, is Luis is very excited that Peru has qualified for its first World Cup since 1982. Just a little bit. I'm just a little bit excited. It's okay. So so <laughs> where do we begin with the Luis Miguel Echegaray oh story? Oh, my God. I don't know. I don't know where to begin. Uh, I guess from the beginning, right? Well, first of all, I'm so happy to do this, Grant. Um Guys, I don't know if you know, but like obviously, like Grant said, I joined uh, last year. I joined in June. And, um, you know, uh, as you join any new job, it's always sometimes challenging to see, you know, who um, you're going to click with or who you're going to work with close and stuff. And the soccer community specifically um, can be interesting. And Grant, I can safely say that it's just one of my closest friends now, not just coworkers. And it's just, I love, I love the fact that, that we're doing this. So, so I wanted everybody to know that, that it's not like I'm going to finish this podcast and be like, oh my God, I just did this with Grant. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hope people understand that. Like, it's just a joy to work with somebody who's so professional, such an influencer, but such a good person. So, um, thank you for having me. Um, I don't know, the beginning. Well, yes, I'm very excited of Peru. My family's Peruvian. Uh, I was raised in Peru until I was 11. Um, and then I moved to England when I, after being 11. Uh, I left Peru during the time when it was the shining path. 
mm-hmm. times when it was very dangerous, bomb explosions all the time. My mother worked for British Airways, so she, her company was even a bigger target, being an international mm. company. So it was very dangerous. Uh, many people actually, um, I wasn't even allowed to walk on the street. Um, it was a very difficult time. So we moved to England. Mm-hmm. And at the time when we moved to England, my dad, I remember saying, oh, we ha- we're moving back to England. And I said, well, what do you mean back? He's like, oh, you were born there. So I also found out that I was born in England. Hello. Yeah, so um, so so that was one thing. So I, so I grew up in England from 11 until uh, 23, where I went to college and stuff. And I wanted to be a soccer player. Like when I was um, at that age, I, I, I joined several youth uh, development systems in England. I, I played in college and it was a big thing for me. But alas, as many of us realize, we're not never good enough to make that extra step. Uh, so I, I moved to New York actually to be an actor. I moved to oh, acting school, and I, I was an actor for many for, for, for many many years. There's a lot to unpack here, yeah, so let's lot. let's rewind for a second. Yeah. you were born in the UK. Yeah, what is what is the story there, and does that make you a citizen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically. Um, just before I was born, my parents moved, uh, were in England visiting my aunt, who's my dad's sister. Okay. My dad has a big, had a big family, um, you know, five uh, brothers, four sisters, and two of them married uh, Brits in, in the 70s in Peru, and they moved to England. Mm-hmm. So my dad and my mom visited them at the time. Oh, let's go to England. Let's, let's, let's visit them in, in South London. And um, just as my mom finds out that she's pregnant with me in England... My dad's like, well, we got to go back to Peru, and 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 my uncle, my my dad's sister's husband was like, why don't you just stay here for a little bit, you know, uh, do some work here and get get Luis Miguel or the kid, the baby, to be born in England. So, mm-hmm. and I was born six weeks before I think Margaret Thatcher said that, you know, if you're born out of uh, you know foreign parents, you're not a citizen, you're a unit. So it's a it's a, huh. it was a different situation. Wow. So, um, but but yeah, I was born in England, and then literally like as soon as after I was born, we moved back to Peru. Okay. So I didn't even know I was born in England until I was eleven. And my dad said we're going back. My whole family's born in Peru, raised in Peru. My entire family, I'm Peruvian, obviously, uh, by blood and and by everything else. But but. I have a very close affinity to England. I, I, I was there from 11 until 23. I went to school there. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my very, very good friends, best friends are English. I, when I first moved to New York, you know, I, I talked like this, or my LA, you know, so it was, it, England's very close to my heart. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, we can also know if anyone who watches our, our show on SITV that you're, you're quite good in front of the camera, and now we know you're an actor or have been an actor. What's the actor story? Yeah, so um, so I moved to New York. So I want. So as soon as I left college in England, I knew that I I, I studied theater and film and television and literature in England, in London, and I knew that I wanted to pursue that. As when I found out that I wasn't good enough to be a soccer player, gotcha. so sports was still obviously a big part of my life. But I, I loved theater, film, television. So I, I, I auditioned for acting school here in New York, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Um, and I got in, I got a scholarship, and it was just an amazing um, time. First of all, it was an amazing time because I don't want to go too much of tangent, but one of the things about living in England as a Peruvian, as a Latino, was that you never really felt like you could identify so much with that because Latinos, Hispanics in, in, in Europe, it's totally different to being a Latino in North America from obvious reasons. Yeah. So there was no, so, you know, there wasn't, there's, there wasn't an immediate connection to my heritage in England. Um, uh, and so I felt a little bit disconnected from mm. just everything about me. 
So uh, moving to New York wasn't just because of the acting. It was also because I, I, I felt I needed to find myself again. Living in England, as much as I loved it, I felt that I was a person with no country. You mm. know, in, in England, I wasn't really English and I wasn't in Peru. So I didn't really feel connected, even though, you know, uh, my family was there. My, my, my father passed away uh, in my 20s, my mother, a year after I moved to England. So it was I, I was very, I felt very... Um, uh, as much as I loved it and as much as all the friends I had, I didn't know who I was. Hmm. And then I moved to New York and then I found myself again because this city just completely helped me understand who I was and everything. Um, so, you know, in England, I wasn't Luis Miguel, Luis. I was Luis, right? Uh. Echegaray wasn't Echegaray. It was Echegary. So, like, it was uh, my nicknames in school were Extra Hairy, uh, sketch, like all this <laughs> stuff, right? Because people didn't really understand, like, the Latino connection so much. So, moving to New York was, like, a big deal. So, yeah, so I moved here. I became an actor. Um, I moved to LA as well. Um, I did a really bad B movie called Mutant Chronicles. Uh, it had John Malkovich in it, Ron Perlman and stuff. I play the Latino best friend to Thomas Jane, who was the Punisher a few years ago. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I lived like this, like sort of like waiter slash actor. I yeah. got a few good gigs. I started writing some stuff. And then um, my wife and I decided that, okay, how long can we live this life of inconsistency? Because being an actor is as great as it is. Uh, it can be very inconsistent. So, right. uh, so I, I realized that, my wife was like, well, you, you are so obsessed with the beautiful game and I'm tired of listening to you about it. Uh, but you love talking about it, writing about it, even before journalism, before mm -hmm. uh, entering the world of sports. So I, I did a documentary uh, in 2015 called The Fall Kings, uh, which is like a, a, about a high school soccer team here in the city. Um, they're all immigrant kids. Uh, that just keep winning so I did this little documentary and that was my ticket to journalism school and and the story of, of journalism continued there so so yeah so it's it's quite a story <laughs> yeah it, it's, a, it's a really cool story but I don't want to bore you everybody with a whole thing but yeah that was basically my, 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 my path I don't think anyone's bored here I, I, I want to know once you decided to go to journalism school you know how did that go and then what you know what did you do after that that ended up leading to sports illustrated yeah so i so i didn't know anything about journalism i mean i knew it to the point of like i i loved reading i i, I read your stuff all the time i read other people's like you know uh especially you know the guardian the new york times all these things uh but i i my heart was with filmmaking mm -hmm. i love to to make films and television and write so i but i but I combined sports and filmmaking in one into this documentary. Um, that was basically my ticket to go to CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, and that changed my life, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. Um, that was the reason why I'm here. They taught me not just how to write and how to become a journalist, um, you know, people like Catherine Lurie, who works for the Wall Street Journal, and um, Ka uh, Carrie Brown, who's the head of social, and Jeff Jarvis, who I'm sure uh, you know. All these people, like, introduced me to, to journalism. And this was just a one-year intensive program mm. called Social Journalism, which is still happening right now, which is fantastic. Um, and that's, I learned everything in that year. But what, what I really learned was how to, A, be a journalist, but also how to be an engager of people. Because one of the things about this job this career, which I'm so young to, um, I only started in 2015, is that communication is the name of the game, right. but between ourselves can be very difficult. I think people don't know how to communicate, and I think we're losing that. So I, my acting background mm -hmm. helped me with that. I was mm -hmm. able to um, understand how can we 
live in a world where social media and digital reporting is so important, but yet feel connected to the audiences we're talking to. And that's what I was able to understand. In that year, I joined Vice mm -hmm. for a brief period of time in their HBO programming uh, department. And that really was my first lesson of what it's like to work mm -hmm. in a newsroom. Um, I did uh, freelance work for Univision and you know, I started like networking and then I ended up working with The Guardian, mm -hmm. uh, which was really my very first steps towards sports journalism and understanding okay. what it is to engage. And one of my big things there was to help The Guardian as an international newspaper understand the validity of Latino and Hispanic audiences in this country, mm -hmm. which that's a whole other podcast, right? But <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very important audience, not just from a... Um, you know, the right thing to do kind of thing, but also from a numerical perspective, sure. like this is a huge, so I helped them with that. Uh, my contract ran out with that um, at the end of 2006, 2016. Yeah, that's right. And then in 2017, I was freelancing for a little bit and started talking to folks here at SI. And June is when I, when I started. And this really is my, my dream job with, with some incredible people. So yeah, that's where we are now now. And as the modern media works, you wear a lot of hats here. Yeah, can, yeah. Can we, you, I don't even have a title here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you doing right now? What are the various things you're doing at Sports Illustrated? Uh, so the, the one of the main things that we're doing here is last year, The reason, the, one of the main reasons why I joined is because uh, SI, as many other places, realizes that in order to um, serve the sports community, better is to not just do it from the sports perspective, but from a cultural one. You right. can't just talk about sports and think that it's seen through the eyes of one race or one gender or whatever. It's it's many eyes, many facets. So we started Planeta Football, which is the Spanish sister of Planet Football or part of Planet Football's vertical, I guess. Um, it's all content in Spanish that directly speaks to the Spanish-speaking uh, Hispanic Latino audience, not just in the America in America, but in the Americas. So right. all the new. So if you go to si.com and you see Planet Football with all your great content, Brian's great content, uh, some of my stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, Planeta Football serves uh, stories that are talking about. Uh, the Argentinian first division mm -hmm. to Liga MX to the World Cup but from a Latino perspective. So so they needed somebody to run that. So I, I'm in charge of making sure that I, we curate that page. We make sure it looks good, that people come to it. And it's early days. Uh, you know, we only start because that really didn't come even later until after um, I joined. But But slowly but surely, we're trying to say, hey, we know that this audience exists. We're trying to serve it. But the real reason, the other main reason why I'm here is because we're trying to uh, work and understand and engage and grow our U.S. Latino community, mm -hmm. which is a completely different animal. This is a community that um, has a direct relationship with um, their Latino background, whether they're first or second generation, but they're American. Right. They have the Americans. So they, they love... Uh, Independiente, as much as they love uh, uh, Christian Pulisic, right? They they follow, um, you know, uh, Juan Carlos Osorio and El Tri as much as they love uh, Georgia football, right? So, and and most people don't understand that this is a complex, big, growing, 
fast learning audience. So that's really my job where I'm I'm trying to create content, not just from a soccer perspective, but from video to different sports, to written content, to interviews, and try and make SI a leader uh, in the sports community and say, and say to this Latino community, this US Latino community, which is the youngest uh, ethnic racial group in this country, uh, trying to make them understand, come to SI because we're here for you. So that, that that's really my main job here. You also happen to appear on SITV's Planet Football with me. I do sometimes wonder how you have enough time to do all the things you do, Luis, <laughs> but you always seem to show up on time for, for recording. Well, I sleep a lot. No, <laughs> no uh, that, by the way, is... Uh, I know that this is like a shameless plug, but doing the show is... I don't see it as a job, which like is pretty bad, I guess, but <laughs> but it is. I mean, we work very hard on it. We have a great team here of producers and stuff. Grant, of course... Uh, being being the leader with, with with the whole thing, but I I love doing it so much. It's such a great opportunity to because it's a show that is it's not about highlights, which even though they're important, it's about trying to move the conversation of the beautiful game. So yeah, yeah, that's another thing that I do, which I love doing. Love it. I'm really enjoying it too, and just so glad that you've been a part of it. I was on book leave when you. Um, yeah, that's right. You joined Sports Illustrated. I was out for four months over the summer, and I didn't come back until October 2nd. And I remember the day I came back, I was told, oh, by the way, we're starting an SI streaming channel on November 15th. That is a definite, and you're going to do a weekly soccer show. And that's basically all that anybody knew at that point. And I think maybe at first they were kind of like thinking that I would do this on my own, and pretty quickly... And we thankfully got to know each other pretty well pretty early on once I started back up again. But like, you know, the idea of having you be a, the co-host came up and it's just been a ton of fun. I, I really appreciate that it's been so easy to develop a chemistry in front of the camera because it's not, you know, not a given. Uh, it's no, not, not inevitable. And even though I'm from Kansas and even though you're from Peru, we have this common language of soccer and... My background is actually a, a Spanish-speaking background in Argentina. I, I used to live there in the 90s. Uh, when I am asked my favorite team, it's Boca Juniors. And I just love living in this city in New York where you can run into people like you, Luis, and, and just have a great conversation about soccer. And there's so many different things to talk about. I guess what I would ask you for listeners here is when somebody asks you, Who's your teams? What do you tell them? Yeah, that's always an interesting question because obviously, and it was asked to me actually a few weeks ago uh, in Reddit when we were doing a few of the, um, you know, Ask Me Anything uh, blogs and Peru is my heart. It's it's what I know. It also, I always also tell people that, um, like you said, everybody has a story and because my parents are no longer with me, it's kind of like the best way that I can connect with them. When Peru defeated New Zealand to qualify, like <laughs> I was in my apartment with my wife. She was sleeping. She's a teacher. So she's like, you know, out like a light. And I'm like screaming and I'm crying. Yeah. And like, and she woke up like, 
you know, the whole apartment was like, what is going on? Like, you know, so to me, Peru is, is the team that I, that I have so much connection with because of who I am, not just as a sports fan, but because of where my family is from. I mean, I remember growing up and my dad would take me to Alianza Lima matches when Cubillas came back to play for free because of what happened in the plane accident, similar to Chapecoense, like the same kind of situation in Peru. Um, and my dad would hug me and tell me, you know, remember this because you're, you're seeing, um, you know, our Pelé, you know, and things like that, like just made me so connected. And, and the fact that Peru made it to the World Cup makes it even more so because we're such an underdog team. I have a close relationship with England. I love the England national team. Um, I love seeing them do well when they do well. <laughs> uh, and and the U.S., my wife is, is American from Connecticut. I've, I've lived here longer than – I've lived here in New York longer now than Peru and England. So okay. to me, America is very close to me. When U.S. didn't make it to the World Cup, it was very disheartening to me. I felt very sad. So those are my three countries, Peru being my main one. But um, when people ask me, that's what I tell them. Yeah. The, the clubs, club situation, that's different. And that's another story. I'm, a, I'm an Aston Villa fan. So, <laughs> oh so, so, yeah, so that's like a whole different – thick so so yeah it, it's a tough one <laughs> how why aston villa well when i first moved to england um we moved uh, in an area where it's heavily um um arsenal or, or heavy or heavily tottenham and i didn't want neither uh because uh, arsenal fans um um where i lived tended to be uh, greek um, or hmm. turkish so the Greeks thought I was a Turk and, Turk and Turkish just thought I was Greek. And I was like, no, I'm Peruvian. And they were like, we don't know what that means. So it was like, so no, but I moved. I, I didn't know who, to, who I wanted to root for. Um, yeah. I wanted a Premier League team. And it was luckily at the time when the Premier League just started yeah. and Aston Villa aside after Manchester United were the best team in the league. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know any of that. So and I didn't have any friends. My English was very broken. And I made friends with this guy called Mark Russell, mm -hmm. who was who was a huge Aston Villa fan. Okay. And he's like, I'm an Aston Villa fan. And I was like, okay, what is that? <laughs> so he took me to, his family would take me to every home game. We would take the train to, to Birmingham every single home wow. match. Um, they would pay for it because my parents couldn't really afford it at the time. They bought me a jersey. Um, and, and I remember going like to Villa Park all the time growing up like when I was able to do it and and luckily we were amazing at that time we came second wow. uh, in the opening you know season of, of the Premier League uh, and then Dwight York uh, was like my hero he still is like my favorite player of all time when people ask me how my favorite player I, I, I tell them Kubias and Van Basten but then I say Dwight York uh, so that, that that's why and that's never left me I'm, I'm an Aston Villa fan and Alberto Solano when he started playing for them obviously was amazing for me Juan Pablo Angel obviously like when he came here like to me He's like, when Red Bulls fans think, why, why are you like so obsessed with him? I'm like, there's a reason yeah. he was incredible for us. So that that's why. Nice. I, are you optimistic they might get back to the Premier League at some point? Yes, I'm optimistic. I, I It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, we just went through a rough patch in the in the holiday period. Uh, Steve Bruce, now the, the manager, who I'm, I'm a bit of a critic because... Uh, as as much of an experienced manager that he is, he's I I think creatively limited, uh, but he has a his his statistics don't fail you know to to live up you know they they mirror what he has done like he's he's promoted uh, two different teams with uh, you know from the championship to the Premier League so um, but like I said December was rough just won the last two like yesterday. Um, so if this podcast, uh, let's see, yesterday, so what was it, two, Monday? Monday, a New Year's Day, Aston Villa defeated Bristol City 5-0. Uh, and then the game before that, Middlesbrough uh, as well. So 
they're in playoff contention. So I think I think Aston Villa will get promoted in October. I was very confident that would be this season. Uh, now playoffs, you just never know. Yeah. So, but you know what? At least we're winning, and like because the Premier League time was horrible to watch. It was just so depressing. There was no effort and there was no creativity. At least now we have a sense of effort and we have some great players. Jack Grealish is finally coming back to his creativity. It's just great to see. So we'll see. Good luck with that. It's already been a good year for you with Peru qualifying for the World Cup. Uh, you've also done some coaching. That's uh, oh yeah, here, that's right. I forgot York. about that. Well, yeah, fill me in. So. Um, during my acting times, as inconsistent as that work can be, I also um, wanted to coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to still, you know, not just, you know, financially speaking, but I wanted to stay close to the game because I played it a lot growing up and I still play it obviously recreationally, but I wanted to stay connected to the whole idea of like what it's like to be in a team and everything like that. So I coached and I coached a lot. Um, it started with me coaching uh sort of for free for kids in the South Bronx and you know just there's so much talent out there that's just not seen Mm -hmm. so it was just me helping uh, kids out uh, from the community to me eventually just uh, coaching uh, in a private school here in in the city Dalton actually like one Mm -hmm. of the most uh, one of the richest schools in in the country but it was like an opportunity for me to be a high school coach and, and see what it was like to coach here in America and understand the high school system even though it was a private school it still it felt good to like coach a team and then after that Sorry, and then during that, my I still like wanted to uh, coach several, you know, kids around the area and stuff. And you know, sometimes I would do like for you guys that don't know this, there's many Hispanic and Latino leagues that you don't know about. Where uh, it's whether it's grown ups uh, who get up at like six, five in the morning to play these huge tournaments on the weekend. When I lived in LA, I was part of two. Uh, Hercules Gomez when I. When I interviewed him, he did the same thing. Yeah. Um, so, and I would take care of their kids. I would like coach their kids as oh. well. So, um, and then as I did this documentary too, I, I also learned, I, I helped that school too a little bit because all these kids come from lower income backgrounds. And um, I learned a lot about the difference between what it's like to be a high school kid who can't afford development academy, whether it's the actual fee or travel or whatever. So that that's... That's when I really felt I needed to get into journalism as well because it was I, we need to tell these stories as as you know. You've had a lot of observation time now of of the American soccer scene, of youth soccer. What's your sense of what are the most important issues right now? I mean, I'm going to be selfish, but I guess it's not selfish because it's something that does need to be said. But the reason why I said selfish is because I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of the Hispanic Latino community. But I think one of the biggest problems in this country is that in a country that's so rich, so celebratory of diversity, at least it used to be when we look at it, the, the grand spectrum right. of things. One of the biggest problems is that we don't have a direct relationship with the communities that we're meant to serve, especially the minority ones the lower economical ones I'm talking about, where um, U.S. soccer or development development academies or whoever it is, um, there's they have a job to do, which is like, you know, to, to grow a certain amount of talent and help them develop, you know, in order to create the, the value of the name of who they're representing. The problem is within all that, they lose complete 
they, they lose the idea of what it's like to represent kids that come from um, Latino backgrounds, uh, you know, African backgrounds, or you know, any other minority community that exists. What I mean by this is, like, like I said, there are many, many kids in this country, right? I can't give you a statistical figure right now, but um, if you read a great article by Les Carpenter for the Guardian, yeah. he he writes about this, and there are many, there are many leagues in this country, not just the East Coast, like everywhere, where many kids can't play or uh, want to even be picked to play because their parents are afraid of what that may mean for them uh, from both an economical to a cultural perspective. And now with the political climate, it becomes even more dangerous where the parents don't speak any English. And I'm not even just talking about Hispanic or Latino. Like I've met them. I've done stories on them. They don't speak any English, right? So already that's like a problem because there's many academies that it's not like they're reaching out uh, in Spanish. I mean, a lot are, but not enough, right? So that's already an issue. Then the other issue is we just interviewed Julie Foudy. She said the same thing. Like culturally, it's an issue because we don't understand how they work, how they live, what they have to do in order to to get to an academy. I remember when I did a piece for The Guardian, I did it about high school soccer and how high school soccer and development soccer should work together. Because, you know, uh, if you're a high school player here, you can't do development academy, right? They don't allow you to do it because the the season for the developments are, are longer. So why can't we both gel together? Because one of the reasons why, um, especially with the documentary that I did, that these kids can't do development is because they can't afford it. Right. Their kids can't afford the travel. They can't do any of this stuff. So that's a big problem. What can we do in order to create this union? At least say, we we are here to welcome you. Let's Let's work together. If we can diversify the talent pool, we will create a bigger, better U.S. soccer system, men and women. Now, we know the, the successes of the women's game, but there's still a lot to do when it comes to try and highlight all these different cultures, I think. And so in terms of a barrier to access, a barrier to, to even play, to be in the system, what in your mind are possible solutions? I think the first thing that we can do is development academies could hire translators or at least people that come from the community that understand the system. For example, every or at least every town has either a boys and girls club or a YMCA or something. Why don't we communicate with them and say, what, what, what's it like to work in this community? What's it like to live in this community? What are the, the, what are the economical restrictions of each community? Why don't we hire somebody that's a liaison between development academies and minority communities in order to create a better understanding, a bridge, so to speak? That to me could be a main thing because right now, I'm, most development academies, they focus so much on the, the, the coaching side of it, which is very important, but not enough on like understanding who they're coaching in the first place. Um, first of all, um, La Masia, like they do this. <laughs> like when a kid enters Barcelona's youth academy, the most famous academy in the world, they don't just interview the child; mm-hmm. they interview the parents. They want to know where they come from, how they can help these parents, how they how it can be a you know a mutual beneficial thing for both of them. Why can that happen here? We can you know instead of asking about money which it is important, let's ask about all the other things, the necessities. It's the same thing as you know, trying to join a, a, a community college. Like, what, what is it that you need from us? What, how we can help you? That's, to me, the number one thing. The second thing, to me, is once, um, is what I already mentioned, which is why don't we have a situation where development academies and high schools or middle schools around the right. area work together? Who are the kids that are working 
who are the kids that are going to your schools? What is your uh, sporting facility uh, situation? How many kids play soccer? Girls, boys, um, can we do a situation where we both work together in order to maybe, um, you know, three days out of the week, um, you know, we do a situation where we do a league that's combined or, or the weekends is just for development, but during the week is exactly, you know, something. Right now, there's no communication, so we don't know what's going on. So that, to me, would be my main two things. Like, also, I, I, I want to say something. I'm not an expert on... Um, U.S. Soccer Development Academy and how to solve them. But I do know one thing, which is that communities in these places don't know that they exist and vice versa. And if they do know that they exist, they feel that they're not welcome. I know that for a fact because throughout my career, even before joining journalism, I've talked to many families, many communities across the country, and they feel alienated. They feel like they're not being represented. That I do know. It's interesting to me. I remember when I did a, a pretty big story on Clint Dempsey for the magazine before the 2010 World Cup, and he was at Fulham at the time doing really well. And we had a long talk about growing up in East Texas, where he grew up. And he said, and he went into some detail on this, and this became the lead to my story about Clint Dempsey, very much a Latino-influenced soccer development for Clint Dempsey. He grew up watching Diego Maradona, the 86 World Cup. He had all sorts of Maradona videos, all that stuff. He watched that. He would go out and try Maradona tricks in the backyard. But he also had this thing he called the Mexican League in Nacogdoches, Texas, which actually had a lot more folks than just Mexicans in it. A lot of Central American folks, you know, Mexican-Americans. But he would tell these amazing stories about how uh, he would play in games, and he was basically the only Anglo playing in right. these games with older Latino men, mainly. You know, here's a teenage Clint Dempsey, yeah. and he actually had a nickname, the Little Rooster, and there was a guy <laughs> who would bet money on his team to win because he loved the way the Little Rooster played. El Gallito. Yeah. <laughs> and and so just hearing Clint Dempsey talk about these stories and seeing how Clint Dempsey has always sort of carried himself on the field, it made me it. wish that there were more situations like that around the country for potential Clint Dempsey's. Correct. Uh, correct. I mean, I um, I remember that story and, and it, it made me feel so good because it was – you can see it when he plays or at least in his heyday when he played. You could see that this person didn't come from a development academy system. He came – and I, I don't want to talk bad of them. I think what, what everybody has the same goal, to improve the nature of the beautiful game in this country. It's just that – we have different ideas because they're based either on money or cultural insignificance or cultural misunderstanding. Clint Dempsey's a perfect example. I I don't the other issue that I think is connected that we've talked about is I think we're a bit too arrogant when it comes to to successes of the American soccer institutional governing, you know, strategies. I think we're we're way too we're not thinking clearly when it comes to um, what it means to succeed in this country as a soccer player, you know. And I think that's I think if we be if we're able to be more, like humble and understand that no, we haven't figured this out yet. 
let's not close doors when we need to open way more windows in order to, to, to get better. I found it interesting. Jonathan Gonzalez obviously has broken through in Liga MX yeah. with Monterey this year, and he was discovered in this program called Alianza de Football. Yeah, which I did a piece on, yeah. Could you fill our listeners yeah. in on what Alianza de Football is and how he was found yeah, sure. Um, so Jonathan Gonzalez is actually one of many, many stories that happen. Not necessarily that they make it so big, but the fact that the opportunities are there. Alianza de Fútbol is basically this organization that goes around the country, uh, based in Mexico and the U.S. They go around the country, the U.S., and they infiltrate these communities. And they're not. They're not. It's not just for Latino or Hispanic. Um, soccer players but what they do is they focus primarily on these areas that have a heavy spanish uh, latino based audience so what happens is they go to these places and it's a free uh trial which is based around um either a day or a weekend and it's not just playing it's like they want to see them you know their technical ability they want to find out who these people are it's organized uh, run by the organization but when it's for example if they go to a town in michigan it's run by people in michigan so they understand like who, who the community is they advertise it all over the place in these communities and thousands and thousands of kids come from all ages and it's just this huge scouting bubble where like um you know, co scouts from Club America to FC Dallas to, you know, all maybe even South American teams. They come and check these kids out. Jonathan Gonzalez, that's how he was discovered. He And you don't have to win anything. I mean, there is a tournament, mm. right, of the best players selected. But some of the best stories come from players that were selected uh, in these mini towns. What happens is, you know, they gather information from all these players and then they're invited not not just to do a trial with the team, but to do uh, a sort of, um, you know, a, a course where they can understand like what the team is like. For example, Jonathan Gonzalez was invited to a team and then that team either selects him or, or he goes on. But the point is he becomes part of, he's now discovered. Scouts and coaches head coaches now know who these kids are. There's other stories. In Santos Laguna, they have like two players that's exactly the same. Alianza de Football is different to anything else because not only does it like gives you the opportunity for players who are not known, but they're they're going into these communities. They're going to the communities. It's not like they're asking the communities to come to them. Mm -hmm. They go all over the country. And, you know, it's not perfect, right? Because, you know, how much can you find out from a kid in two days? But at least it's happening. At least something at least something is happening where they're telling these audiences, look, come to us because we're going to give you an opportunity. Jonathan Gonzalez is the exact situation. That's exactly what happened to him. I also wanted to ask you about women's soccer in the Latino community. We just recorded our most recent uh, SITV show. You should check it out this week. Christian Pulisic, I'm interviewing. Uh, and then we both interviewed Julie Foudy. And you asked Julie about what U.S. soccer can do better in terms of uh, getting Latina players and, and potential players from the Latino community. And she gave you a, an interesting answer, which you can fill the, the listeners in a little bit. But also, I guess, I wanted to find out from you, where are we now on... I have some friends who are like Mexican-American friends who have daughters, have sons, yeah. and say that... 
you know, for the kids, their favorite teams are the Mexican men's national team and the U.S. women's national team, including a lot of the the daughters. Right. And the fathers who are, you know, watching games with their daughters. Right. Where are we right now on the Latino community in the U.S. that has daughters in terms of if you're a girl and options to play? Is Are there still any barriers in the sense? Because if you look at like the Mexican women's national team, there's still a, a kind of a cultural barrier to women playing soccer down there to some extent. Absolutely. I mean, the answer to the question is tricky because, it, again, it's a differentiation between like if you're a first or second generation, uh, you know, Colombian-American or whatever it is, Peruvian-American, Argentinian, whatever, and you come from South America, which even though it's better, the machismo culture still exists. I mean, we we literally just last year, I think, had Colombia had its first ever women's professional league, you know, mm-hmm. one of four, I believe, in South America, right? So don't quote me. I, f- I believe it's four. It may be one more, but I think it's four. So there's still so many issues. Um, when I was with The Guardian, I did an interview um, with um, a player, ex-player, and, you know, she talked to me about the differences between who played in college here mm-hmm. in the U.S. to uh, also going to Brazil and playing. And the way they treated the men's was just, like, completely different to the way they treated the women. So I think that's a problem. Like, let's see, like, if you're talking about a family that just moved to the States and, and, and they're trying to infiltrate themselves in the community, it can be very difficult for for some families to understand uh, and for all of us to understand, you know, the complexities of what it's like for a, for a Latina girl and get the same, um, the same recognition that, that, that boys should get. The other issue is uh, economical, which really just goes uh, from both sides and, and cultural as well. There are many, many, many families here. And I'm not saying that every Latino or Hispanic family, by the way, like suffers economically. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am telling you that there are many millions of of um, Latino and Spanish and Hispanic families that can't afford it because of their schedules. And also, um, there's many dreamers in this country, many kids who came through this, you know, uh, from undocumented families um, who are American, right? But But their parents are so scared of the cultural landscape and the political landscape. They don't want to include their daughter's in these situations, they feel safer when it's men, hmm. when it's boys, for the reasons that I don't even have to explain to you, right? The machismo thinking that boys can deal with it, which hmm. is just complete bogus, right? But with girls, especially Latino fathers, are very protective of like what they're gonna be doing, of what they're gonna, especially in after school activities, right? It's not so much that they don't understand that. They, they should be doing this, but it's more of a level of safety. They want to feel that their daughters feel safe. So that can happen a lot of the time. Now, in, I, again, I go to this Les Carpenter piece, which specifically talks about a girl soccer player, right? A female soccer player, which can be an issue. So those are all big issues that happen. What I want is I want to see, um, unfortunately, there isn't a quick solution to this, but I think the best thing that we can do is is make female soccer players these wonderfully talented, incredibly smart, amazingly gifted and hardworking women be given the same, uh, you know, um, availability of playing, not just from their parents, but from academies, high school teams, right. whatever, saying you are welcome here. Yeah. I, we could talk about this topic for a long, long time. I, 
I found it intriguing recently that Conmebol, which is not always known for progressive thinking, has established a rule, I think it's for 2019 Copa Libertadores, that if you are going to be a club that competes in the men's Copa Libertadores, that your club will have to have a women's team. That's right. Are, do you buy this? Like, It seems like a great idea. Do you think it's going to be taken seriously and, and that this will really increase the development of, of women's soccer in South America? I hope so. I hope it's not just a publicity statement in order to, you know... <laughs> To say Comebol are doing the right thing, and like you said, it's not like Comebol is the leader of uh, progressive thinking, but uh, at least it's the right message, right? I, I I think that luckily, even before this announcement, things were already happening, mm-hmm. where uh, teams, uh, leagues in South America, women's leagues were growing, they were getting better, and they were at least you know being built. So this is just another step, saying that if you're a, a team in the Copa Libertadores, you need to have a a women's side of it. So I hope I, I right now I'm not going to believe it until I see it because I want to know exactly what is the penalty. Right. I mean, are, are, are they going to be kicked out forever from like, I mean, that's just too much money for them to. So I, 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 I do enjoy and I love the fact that this statement has been said. I don't know if it, it will happen to do it. Things in South America are very different to anywhere else. This is what folks need to understand. Like Peru is a perfect example where only recently the federation has has kind of woken up and realized that we need to do more for our women and and our men like so it's it's you know they're developing developing countries that that still have to do a lot of things but at least we're going in the right direction i wanted to wrap up by asking you about you know we heard your story and your path to sports illustrated earlier in this podcast is there anything that you would want to share with people out there listening here who want to go into journalism, young people who want to go into journalism, or you know, even young Latinos who want to go into journalism? I think that from what I have experienced, I, I came to this country like with, you know, very little. Like I got a scholarship to acting school. I got, you know, um, and even though that I knew what I or said that I knew that I was doing, like, you're still learning every way. Journalism, I had no idea of anything. I didn't know, um, I couldn't tell you, uh, you know, a lead from a graph. I couldn't tell you the best ways to interview, but, you know, things, you know, you learn as you go along. My advice to any young person, especially Latinos or Hispanics, is that don't waste your time complaining why things aren't happening like there's especially in this world of journalism where we're trying to what's the best way to uh, get a job or whatever you know my the the things that i did was i created my own content whether it was a film or a story or a social media blog or an instagram blog right don't wait for them to come to you you make things happen because I, I hate to say it to you, but like every newsroom in this country, the majority is not Latino, Hispanic. It's not black. It's not Asian American. It's white, right? Which it's. It, I'm not trying to say that you know uh, things aren't going to get better or anything like that. But diversity is a problem in newsrooms across the country. So you need to create your own name and then push and push and push. We all have to work harder than most people, uh, not just because of. Uh, it's not because 
um, you know, my white colleague friends are not as talented. That's not what I'm saying. It's because when you come from a family that um, your parents have had to learn a different language, um, you know, the political climate that we're living in today, things are, are being restricted. You have to do extra. You just have to. And But you shouldn't make that a complaint. That should be a, a reason for you to push yourself even more and more and more, especially in journalism. And I want to see more women of color in newsrooms. Your stories are important, and I want to hear them. And also, remember something. We're all in this together. I mean, you know, like you said, like you're from Kansas, I'm from Peru, and you're the biggest supporter of my work in this place. Like, honestly, what Grant has done for my work is just incredible. And he's known me for less than seven months. And it's not because he feels he has to do it. It's because we're able to do things like this, have a conversation about diversification, understand that, you know, the, the eyes of the beautiful game are not just through one side. They're everywhere. So that's the other things. I mean, I remember you tweeted something a few days ago saying, you know, I got off Twitter for a little bit. And, you know, even though it's such an important platform, it was so good. Like, I couldn't agree more. Sometimes we yell so much that we don't listen to to, to other points of view. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do. I, I'm trying to create bridges. I don't want anybody to think that because one of the biggest problems is when you create content that's specifically for Latino Hispanic audiences. M most of the criticism from people on social is that we're, we're, we're alienating everybody else. And that's not what we're doing. We're trying to create a bridge to make us see what you like is what we like. We're the same way when it comes to sports. We just have to go the same road. Well, I said this on Twitter when I was actually on Twitter, uh, which, <laughs> which actually is basically all the time except for my four-month book leave. <laughs> One of my great joys of 2017 has been getting to work with you, getting to know you. Uh, I'm really enjoying the show we're doing together and have enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for joining me, Luis Miguel Echegaray. Thank you so much, Grant. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Luis Miguel Echegaray, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, do us a big favor. Take a few seconds to like it and write a review. You'd be surprised how much it helps us. And check out the new 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis on SITV. That's available on Amazon with a free seven-day trial now. Recent guests include Christian Pulisic, Julie Foudy, Roberto Martinez, Patrick Vieira, and Hercules Gomez. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.